Hey, this is Bill Gerber with Greg Bennett. Any questions? All right. Today, I am joined by an entertainment industry icon. He's a producer, a movie executive, and a man who has played a role in shaping just the landscape of the modern cinema and music world. He's been behind some of the biggest blockbusters of the past decade, including Grand Torino, A Very Long Engagement, Grudge Match, LA Confidential, Heat, You've Got Mail, The Perfect Storm, and A Star Is Born. With a career spanning over 30 years, he's been recognised with numerous accolades, including an Oscar nomination and Golden Globe nomination for Best Picture for A Star Is Born. He's also been instrumental in bringing us some of the most beloved franchises of all time, including the Harry Potter series. But beyond the awards and and all the box office figures, what truly sets him apart is his unwavering commitment to the craft of filmmaking and all things entertainment. He's on the Any Question app where you can ask him your questions and listen to over a hundred of his answers answers and uh, just extraordinary content in there already. It's an honour and just a, a really great privilege to have him join me today. So welcome and thanks for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Bill Gerber, how are you, mate? I'm happy to be here, mate. mate. <laughs> what, a, what an honour. It really is. This is a special episode. Um, I was thinking about it. When did we first meet? Was it back in like 2002? You hosted a dinner. Yes. I think I yes. rocked up. <laughs> With uh, Chris Carmichael's crew. I was being coached by Lance Watson. and Me he, too. You were too. Okay, so you were coached yeah, by Lance Yeah, somehow as well. it worked out better for you. <laughs> were, you a real, were you doing triathlon or were you really just focused on the cycling? I know you were. No, I was doing triathlon. He, uh, I was with him for a couple of halves. Yeah. Well, Paul Newby Frazier got me through my one and only Ironman. Nice. And then I was tra- and then I trained with Lance after that. I knew you'd done a couple of triathlons, but I, I knew cycling was probably more of your passion. Is that right? It, it, what, the longer? Yeah, the longer rides and stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know, but swimming was actually where I... Oh, is that right? Well, I, I, I can't say I did anything great in swimming. I just did it better than the other two disciplines. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. You know and what I'm saying? It, yeah, and then I think we met again about 10 years later. When Jim Garfield, a friend of ours, connected us. Well, I had the pleasure of hosting you and your wife in oh nine. I was think. it oh nine? Was it? I thought it was twenty twelve. Yeah. It was oh nine. That's right. Which is nothing. I mean, you know, having a couple of world class triathletes in the house was my idea of a good time. I have to say, mate, our, our idea a of a good of time was staying in in Beverly Hills in a, in a movie producer's guest house. Yeah, <laughs> and experiencing. By all. the way, I could live in that guest house, no problem. Wasn't it awesome? You I dr- love that guest house. You had your drum set in there. That was yeah, a, everything. Amazing setup. Because you're, I mean, when you go back to your original kind of passions, music. Yeah. Music was your first sort of all in, wasn't it? Big time. It's, yeah. It still is. I mean, it's yeah. still. You know, I think we all have that one thing that just makes time stand still yeah. and gets you present. Um, you know, some people it's reading a book, some people it's hiking, some people it's whatever. But for me, it's, you know, a great Beatles song and that's just, I'm happy. Yeah. And you, did you ever think of yourself as somebody that would, wanted to be in a band? I mean, you're in bands playing music. I, what do you mean, did I ever? No, I'm I still mean like. waiting to get in a band. <laughs> I, 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 you know, the reason I went into business is the bands I was in were so bad I realized they had no future and I better get a job. That's the only reason I ended up where I did. I mean, I'd probably be playing a Holiday Inn, you know, Friday night for 300 bucks <laughs> otherwise, which by the way is fine. No, I mean, I, I, think, I, I look get, at those guys. Yeah. I look at those musicians here and there at a bar mitzvah and I'm thinking, they're happy. That's what they like to do. Yeah. Yeah. Good on them. I yeah. love it. Well, let's do this. Let's rewind the clock. Tell us a bit more about sure. your story and, and really just... When you first sort of found your passion for, for music and the entertainment industry as a whole. Well, just, I actually remember very well. So first of all, I was in uh, probably second grade. My parents had split up and my mom took us to New York to live uh, where she was happier. My dad stayed in California. But uh, one day she walked in the apartment with a 45. Of, I saw her standing there and plopped it on the record player and nothing's been the same ever since, you know, she played it. We played it again. We played it again. I remember just jumping up and down like a pogo stick Mm. in pure bliss Mm. and, uh, never looked back. 
that was that. So the, the rock and roll thing was uh, firmly planted at that point. And then I um, started taking guitar lessons and then decided Ringo was my man. And I, I got a drum set, which in a New York apartment is not a very popular thing to do. But <laughs> I started playing drums and loving it and uh, learning every Beatles song. And then I, you know, then I moved on to the Stones and Dave Clark and then eventually The Who and Zeppelin and Hendrix and, you know, the rest of it. Uh, and then into jazz a little after that when I went to University of California in Santa Cruz. But um, when I was about a little older than that, I moved out to L.A. to live with my father without my mom, brother and sister who stayed back in New York for another year and a half. And um, I didn't love school that much in elementary school. I ended up kind of getting it later and enjoying it. But, but you know, four, three, four, five you know, those grades were not exciting for me. And um, I would make excuses to stay home pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be there was a kind of a classic movie uh, channel. Uh, it wasn't totally dedicated to movies, but during the afternoon, there was this famous host, and I have to look him up because he was really quite the film scholar. In the afternoon, they play great classic Hollywood films. They played, mm-hmm. and I saw for the first time, Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot mm-hmm. and The Apartment and movies like that. So other than James Bond and Martin and Lewis movies, I hadn't really seen these films because I was too young to have gone to a theater to see them. And they, you know, so, and there was no home video of any type in, in the 60s. So it just blew my mind watching mm-hmm. these films and, and gave me, I think, a great education about not how they're made, but what were great movies, because that's all they programmed were classic Hollywood movies on this channel. And uh, this is, of course, when there were, I don't know, three channels, Mm -hmm. four channels. And so it was just by divine intervention, my orientation of the film was at a very high level. So those were the two, you know, that was the music moment and the film moment. Although, I always uh, knew about the record business. Like when I decided playing drums in the, in the awful bands that I was playing in post college and said, I'll just get in the, in the record business. So I, I was fortunate enough to know Jerry Moss, who was the partner in A&M records with Herb Albert. My father had been Herb Albert's agent, booking agent when I was a kid. And I went to see Jerry and I said, can I, go to work in the mailroom. And he said, sure. So, you know, I'm a little bit of a, uh, of a Nepo baby. Uh, I guess I'm an OG Nepo baby, uh, and, uh, got my, uh, got my start in the mailroom and, um, you know, uh, mailrooms are mailrooms. And, uh, and I eventually decided that, uh, I'd like to do something a little more exciting. And I called a, a gentleman who had managed one of the awful bands I was in but he had a successful concert business, which means he would promote concerts in LA and some of the surrounding cities. And I said, look, you know, I'm smart. You know, I know music. Can I just come to work there? I'm not happy being in the mailroom. Mm. And he said, fine, you know, paid me very little. And um, because I had grown up in LA uh, and it hadn't been that long since I graduated high school, I was pretty familiar with who we were all listening to, mm-hmm. you know, when we were smoking pot, you know, up at my parents' house and, you know, at the top of uh, Coldwater Canyon on Mulholland Drive. I said, hey, how come, you know, why don't you promote, you know, why don't we do a Kansas concert? Mm-hmm. And uh, David, who ran the place, was like, yeah, okay, I'll call my friend Bud Carr, who manages them, and see if they're on the road. Called them. Yes, we booked them into the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, which was a fantastic venue where a lot of bands first played LA, what like like even Springsteen and Led Zeppelin, people like that. Unfortunately, for some reason, Santa Monica doesn't want ca- concerts there anymore, but it's a perfect 3,000 seat venue. And um, so we put Kansas tickets on sale and sold out in about five minutes. And then we put another Kansas show on sale, sold out. So they kind of started thinking, oh, maybe this guy knows something. So you know, I said, let's do the Bee Gees, let's do Stanley Clark, let's do Ambrosia, stuff that, you know, was kind of happening with my crowd and they were selling out and we were making money. So that was, that was you know, a moment where I had some, some momentum for my career. Then I ended up leaving there, did my own thing for a little while, but I didn't know the film side of things at all. You know, that mm. happened very 
surprisingly, and I never even thought about working in the film business. At one point, after you know some success in music, I I, I was then in the '80s working for Elliot Roberts, who was uh, David Geffen's former partner in their management company, Geffen Roberts. And you know, over the years, they had managed basically everybody. You know, from Dylan to Neil Young to Joni Mitchell to Tom Petty to the Cars. And when I went there in 1979, it was to work with Devo, who I. <laughs> previously met and, and always wanted to work with. And then I went in there as a manager and helped Elliot with uh, Devo and the Cars. And then I signed a few other bands from England, Heaven 17, ABC, Scritti Politti. And uh, matter of fact, I'm doing an interview with Martin Ware from Heaven 17 later this week for his podcast, All Things Electric, um, which will be fun to reminisce about my, my days and in London, because it was the early 80s and, you know, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood and everybody had taken over the, the town. And it was quite an exciting period. But but it was much later when I when I learned when I learned that there was a film business. I mean, I was so naive, you know, I had no idea where films came from. And it was because we at uh, Elliot's company at Lookout Management, we were asked to do some soundtracks. So because we had such a great roster and um you know, in those days, in the 80s, you know, all the, not all the, but many soundtracks ended up blowing up and in some cases actually made more money than the movies they were put together for. So that was, uh, that was my introduction into movies was doing, you know, as a soundtrack supervisor. Um, and uh, I started reading scripts and started meeting people in the film business and then started to figure out what they did. But I, I still wasn't looking to do it. Until I was offered a job at Warner Brothers in '85, and um, frankly turned it down a couple of times before I I went over there. <laughs> Mate, I, that was awesome. By the way, um, is quite a career journey. Personally, some of my favorite music of all time comes from that era that you were in. Um, I'm a massive fan of the Cars and Talking Heads. Uh, I kind of I could listen to Talking Heads all day. I just think. You know. Well, ironically for this, uh, for you, uh, one of the first films I worked on when I got to Warner Brothers, uh, courtesy of Mark Canton and Bob Daly and Terry Semmel was uh, True Stories, which oh, was yeah. David Byrne's directorial debut. Ah, classic. There you go. Oh, so good. I just remember, you know, Stephen Baker, one of my oldest friends, great guy at Warner Brothers Records, uh, great art collector and knows everything about everything. But um you know, he was Burns' guy at the, at the label. And I just remember after the premiere in New York going to Mr. Chow's with David Byrne. And I was like, mm. you know, I was really feeling it. I mean, I grew up around famous people and no famous people and no creative people. But he was just so lovely and yeah. bright. And yeah. he's just such an original person, you know. So original. His music, his music is yeah. so original. His music's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just love being in his presence, I have to say. Yeah. Oh, that's, and you said you grew up around. So what was your, your mom and dad's involvement in sort of the entertainment industry? What did they do? My mother tried to keep my dad afloat. I mean, she mm -hmm. dropped out of NYU in her senior year, while, you know, on the dean's list to get a job to help support my dad, who was like a Broadway Danny Rose agent out of the, you know, right out of the Woody Allen movie. I mean, wow. he and my godfather, Norman had this little cockamamie agency and they represented, you know, their, I'm sure their biggest act was like a, uh, you know, an exotic dancer or a magician or something. I mean, it was pretty pathetic, but they were eking it out. And, um, and my mom was just trying to help pay the bills. And, uh, in those days, the clubs in New York worked with a specific agent. They would have an exclusive relationship with an agent, and the agent was who you had to call to put your act into the club. You right, know, right, right. So they had a few clubs, and and MCA decided, which was Lou Wasserman's company and the biggest booking agency in the world. They they decided they wanted those clubs, so they basically just hired my father and my godfather. And uh, in they all of a sudden they became legit and they were MCA agents in black suits with black ties and white shirts and, and had actual jobs. That was my dad. You know, that was his first kind of legit gig. He had, he had also started out as a musician. It kept him out of the war because he went into special services and 
you know, entertain the troops instead of D-Day, which was nice because I wouldn't be here otherwise. And my mom, you know, was just a big uh, uh, music lover, you know, literally uh, worshipped Frank Sinatra. I mean, when my father took her to meet Frank finally uh, because he worked with the Rat Pack in Vegas, which is where we moved, uh, which is actually where I was born and where MCA had moved my father to work. Mm. Um, she couldn't even like the she couldn't get the words out of her mouth to even say hello. She was just so, you know, just mm. frozen mm. with love for Sinatra, which I understand. Anyway, so my dad went from MCA. There was a thing in '63 where. MCA was broken up by uh, Attorney General uh, Robert Kennedy, and the, a lot of the agents went to a place called General Artist Corporation, um, by a very famous businessman named Herb Siegel. And uh, there, uh, he and my godfather started signing some pretty big people. And my godfather actually was the guy responsible for signing the Beatles to GAC for touring. Wow. He went to he literally told his boss some bullshit story about why he had to go. And then he went up to Liverpool and met Epstein and, and signed the Beatles. As a matter of fact, I'm working on a documentary about the days uh, back in the sixties when um, uh, homosexuality was illegal. And some of these incredible uh, music entrepreneurs like Brian Epstein and Robert Stigwood and Kit Lambert, though they would have gone to jail had anybody, uh, you know, had they been arrested for their, for the fun they were having, our documentary talks about the LBGTQ uh, contribution to rock and roll, which is a story that's never been told. But there's a scene where there, uh, where you're seeing Epstein at the Plaza Hotel the first time the Beatles, you know, about to do the Ed Sullivan show, and he gets into a car and and he's literally with my godfather in the car, you know, going to some meeting, and and my godfather's saying, you know, you're gonna have any fun when you're in New York and blah blah blah. So you know, it's it's just cool to see that and. It's cool that my dad and my godfather were involved with the Beatles because they're still my number one faves. You've mentioned the Beatles several times already and we're we're 15 minutes in and it's like uh, for you to be able to have this opportunity to put this documentary together must be be amazing, right? I mean, just be able to have that. It's amazing. I'd like to do one on my father eventually because um, not only did he have this amazing uh, career in the entertainment business of then when my parents uh split uh again which they did often but at one point the time that we were we'd gone from vegas to new york and then to la all for my dad's job uh, my mom had had it with my dad and la and and driving uh and took the three of us and moved back to New York. So at that point, my father needed a roommate and ended up uh, getting a house with a guy named uh, Danny Simon. And uh, so you had these two, you know, newly separated guys. One's a talent agent, one's a comedy writer. They uh, move in together. And uh, as they say, hijinks ensued, you know, and they were you know, fighting over this and that. And, and Danny would be up at two in the morning waiting for my dad to get home, worried sick about him. And, you know, one thing led to another. So Danny's brother, hearing all these stories, thought, oh, this is this is a great idea for a play. And uh, his name uh, was Neil Simon. And he had written a couple successful things at that point, like uh, 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 Barefoot in the Park and other things. And decided to write this story based on the relationship that his brother Danny had with my father, Roy, and he called it the odd couple. No way. No and, yeah, way. So, <laughs> that's, a, that's my dad. So, you know, he wasn't a sports writer and he wasn't a slob like Oscar, but uh, all this stuff about the pot roast and the thing and the pigeon sisters and all that stuff was based on their experiences. Um, wow. So, my dad had a great career. You know, he was with the Rat Pack. He was with the Beatles. Um, later in his life, he became a manager again with my godfather. And they had a company called Artist Entertainment Complex with a guy named Martin Bregman, who was a very brilliant producer. And the company did Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico and managed Bette Midler and Barry Manilow and this one and that one. And they had a good run. Mm. They had a good run. Did you ever think you'd sort of just end up working with your dad or was that ever an option or is it always you're going out on your own? Mm, yeah, I always did my own. I mean, you know, the truth is 
the one thing he'd never really wanted me to be was a uh, uh, an agent. So that's right. the one thing I've never been in the entertainment business. Like, you don't want to be an agent, Billy. Is that right? So yeah. I, I did a lot. I did everything else. But um, uh, we never really talked about working together. Um, there was one thing when I was a concert promoter, like right when I, you know, when I was still a kid. And I, that was my first real job. And we were going to make a deal for one of the people he was managing during this brief period when he was at Motown with his good friend, Shelly Berger. They were running the management division at Motown Records over there. And Shelly to this day still manages uh, the Temptations and, you know, was was Diana Ross's manager for a long time. Anyway, these are guys that you can't, their experiences are just extraordinary. I mean, I, I know all these guys are making a lot of money at uh, Uber and Snap and everything else, but it just, just doesn't feel quite as interesting as guys who created a, the entertainment industry. No, Matt, well, look, I think, I think everybody's got interesting stories. I think it depends on where you're coming from. And I don't know that money determines whether you're interesting or not. That's for sure. I kind of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, one of the things I've truly enjoyed about our friendship over the years, are, you know, I often just feel like sitting back and listening to your stories, you know? So when, when you transitioned over to, to Warner Brothers, um, what was, firstly, what was that kind of like moving from music, which was your real passion and, and concerts and everything else, and then mm. going over to film, and you, you kind of said earlier that you kind of said no quite a few times, but you obviously decided to jump in, and then you were there for, for a long time with Warner Brothers, um, yeah. and then you went out on your own. But that, that transition, what was that like? It wasn't great, to tell you the truth. You mm. know, I went over there, you know, all of a sudden I'm wearing suits and ties and in meetings with a big, you know, a big group of people. I mean, I was used to just sitting in the office with Elliot Roberts and Tony Dimitriotis. And if there was something we all needed to discuss, you know, we'd get together and go, you know, what about blah, 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 or can you call this promoter and tell him to stop screwing up and whatever, you know, it was like simple, just, mm, you know, mm. two, three people talking about something. All of a sudden I'm in a meeting and I, I had prepared, I took it very seriously, the job, you know, I'd read, I read basically every script they had in development going in. I took film classes before I went in. I read every film book I could get my hands on. And so I showed up prepared to be a, what I thought, you know, would be prepared to be a a studio executive. And um, I was all of a sudden meeting with people who hadn't, hadn't really been outside of the bubble. You know, they like went to Harvard and worked on the, you know, literary publications mm. or worked for publishers and they were pretty fancy people and all very, very bright. But I mean, they hadn't really, you know, they hadn't walked around, you know, Atlanta after a gig with $10,000 in cash trying not to get mugged, you know, to get by, by the, before <laughs> you get to the hotel. And, um, you know, when you're in rock and roll, uh, at least, you know, my experience, you're traveling the world, you're meeting people, you're opening doors, you're, you know, you're making deals, you're solving problems, you know, you, you kind of get screwed here. You know, all of a sudden you, your band can't go to the gig because the mafia is outside, you know, and they're and they don't want to you know, make a deal to give you the van. <laughs> so the promoters are arguing with them and you're just hoping nobody gets shot. You know, you just you've done things and you've seen the world from a kind of a cool perspective, you know. Yeah. And um, now I'm with these uh, pampered uh, movie executives uh, talking about the virtues of this script or that script. And I was kind of like, wow, this, this is, this is boring, you know, but I got the hang of it, you know, and I kind of figured out what was going on. And I think for a good year or so, the bosses, you know, the big bosses that were kind of thinking like, what is this guy doing? Cause I'd go in the meeting and I would be, I wasn't, it wasn't that I was impolite. I just didn't know what I was doing or what I was talking about. And I'd say things like, why are we spending so much money on this movie with so-and-so? And they'd be like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, who made him, you know, an expert, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, what what happened was, uh, you know, I told you I worked on that two stories movie, which certainly didn't, you know, it didn't blow up commercially, but it was important. Mm. Uh, I worked on a phenomenal documentary on John Lennon with David Wolper that David Wolper produced and put together and had the deal with Yoko Ono. And, you know, that was a really, obviously you talked about, you know, the Beatles, you know, that was going full circle and, and, mm-hmm. you know, and they were all alive at that point. And it was, uh, well, actually, no, sorry, John, John wasn't alive at that point, but mm-hmm. the other three were, and we had a little bit of a legal problem with them. And I, I remember my boss, you know, literally laying into their lawyer about something. I was like, 
you can't, you can't do that. It's the Beatles. You know, you can't yell at him like that <laughs> anyway. And by the way, the most important part of being in the movie business is, is reading. You know, a lot of people try to get through it. You know, they don't want to read these scripts. The fact is that's the only way to know if anything's good. You know, people, there's famous stories about so-and-so only reading coverage, which is a synopsis of the script and not reading scripts. You know, for me, that was the whole, that, 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 that's what I took very seriously was the reading. And there's many movies in my career that would not have happened had I not read a spec script, meaning a spec script being something that, you know, is just sent to you. It's a free ball. You can buy it or not buy it. Mm-hmm. Like even Gran Torino was a spec script, you know? Wow. Anyway, uh, and Perfect World, another Clint Eastwood movie. I just, I, you know, somebody sent it to me who I respect and I read it. But, uh, and so without reading it, you know, you, you're just, you're bullshitting your way through it. And a great uh, guy, he was actually a friend of my dad's, but he was one of the founders of, uh, not the original, original, but he was an old school CAA agent named Marty Baum, said, Bill, call me up. So I got this script. It's called Reversal of Fortune uh, and uh, blah, 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 blah. You know, you should read it. So, and Ed Pressman was the producer. I read it. I go, shit, this is great you know it's the whole Klaus von Bülow story and um so I put it on the weekend read and people read it and they were like yeah it's not bad blah blah anyway I really wanted to get the movie made and kept pushing and pushing and pushing and uh finally a push came to shove and I you know I didn't have a ton of support but I went down to my boss's office Terry Semmel and I he was on the phone literally he wasn't even like hundred percent having this conversation for, with me. And I just, and I just, he goes, he'd be like, put the phone by his ear and like looked up to me like, what is it? What is it? And I said, and I literally just put up my hand and I said, meaning five, I put up my hand, five fingers, reversal of fortune five. And he just said, okay, fine. <laughs> I mean, that's how great the movie business was when I was at Warner brothers. I, he said, okay, I ran down the thing. I called Marty Baum. I said, you got the five. So we were basically buying the domestic rights. It was a movie. So it was that a five was million purchase. Five million for you, uh, North uh, America, and that they were going to sell the other territories outside of us to finance the movie. <laughs> and I, and I got the deal. But anyway, so the movie comes out, you know, and it's, you know, does a lot of business. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy wins the Academy award. I mean, it was like a big deal, you know, and yeah. all of a sudden they're like, Oh, okay. Uh, you know, this guy, uh, maybe he's, Figuring it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that awesome to, you can actually point to one actual moment in time where yes. you kept pushing, you kept pushing, you kept pushing, and then there was a boom, it happened. And then the box office just backed you up. It's like, okay. It, exactly. And then, and then the next big thing was uh, striking up the relationship with Clint Eastwood, which wow. uh, was not something uh, anybody else, you know, my level at Warner Brothers had. You know, he basically he spoke to Bob Daly and Terry Semmel, and he spoke to Joe Himes, who was also a, a big uh, a mentor of mine, uh, who did all the marketing for Clint and for Kubrick, and then for Oliver Stone when, when we brought him over to Warner Brothers. And um, he's a famous, amazing guy anyway so uh uh the fact that clint you know liked me and i immediately put a movie together for him called the rookie with uh, charlie sheen mm. then i was really off and running because then you know i'm in a whole different world at warner brothers you know i'm on the jet with terry samuel and clint eastwood and i'm going to you know scotland for the edinburgh arts festival and yes you know, I'm, I'm a whole le- different league at that point what was that moment, you know, with Clint Eastwood when you first met each other? Well, there's a story about when I first, first met him when I was a teenager, but that's not the story. I mean, you know, I mean, it's a story he and I laugh about. But uh, what happened was Joe Himes wanted Clint to meet me, uh, especially because they came out of music. You know, he's a frustrated piano player. I'm a frustrated drummer. And so Clint took me over to, I mean, uh, Joe took me over to meet Clint on the scoring stage when he was doing Bird. And he actually had he was doing the score and he had a lot of Charlie Parker's original band there doing the music. It was quite extraordinary. And we started rapping. And then the next thing I know I'm going to the, the then U S film festival, which was renamed a couple of years later, the Sundance film festival. And, uh, so Joe Himes, Barry Reardon, um, a couple of guys and I went up to, uh, to the festival in park city and, um, just started bonding, you know, skiing. I mean, I, you know, Clint and I were probably the most avid skiers in the bunch. So we just, you know, you know, paired up and we were off and running, having a great time and playing golf and skiing. And I was bringing him 
you know, scripts. And so after The Rookie, we did, uh, you know, I got to work on Unforgiven with him. And then I found Perfect World and I found Space Cowboys. And we did uh, Bridges of Madison County together and, you know, just on and on and on. But, you know, he's a guy who, if you're lucky enough to become friendly with, you just, uh, you know, you hang in there because um, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from someone like that. And um, he's just an extraordinary guy, very humble and hardworking. And, you know, that's where I learned how to run a set. It was from Clint Eastwood. You know, I, the, the story, you know, the first thing that really blew my, I mean, there were a lot of things that, (laughs) that he said that really informed the way I, I look at movies, but you know, his no nonsense approach to it is pretty extraordinary. Mm. I remember on the rookie, which is the first film I I was an executive on with him. I, 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 we were flying somewhere and I was like, when are you thinking of starting the movie? And he said, ah, you know, April something, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, and so, so would you start rehearsals, you know, m- March something? He goes, rehearsals? So I go, yeah, aren't you going to like rehearse for a couple of weeks before you start? He goes, uh, no, that's what the first take is for. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I okay. <laughs> now I get it. And, you know, he just, this guy, he, he, he is so frugal and smart about making movies. And he's just a genius. He's just a genius. But... You know, so I go to the set. I'm with Joe Himes. I think it was, oh, it was Bridges of Madison County, I think. Nah, that would, could, it must have been sooner, earlier than that. But anyway, so we're on the set, and we're in Clint's bus, which I think is the same bus he's had since Rawhide or something. I mean, the bus is older than me. Anyway, so <laughs> we get on the bus, and, you know, and somebody, you know, one of the ADs comes and you know, knocks on the door, you know, Clint, uh, we're going to break for lunch. Cool. All right. Da, da, da. So I think somebody's going to come and take our order, you know, like, oh, I'll have <laughs> crab cakes, whatever. Right. And click goes, come on, let's go get something to eat. You know, so I, we get up, we walk out and there's like, you know, 20 people waiting at the buffet to get their lunch. And I'm following Clint thinking, oh, he's going to go sit down and they're going to bring us some food. And, you know, he takes a tray. He's now number 21 in line. And I'm like, and of course I don't say shit. I just grab my tray and <laughs> jump in behind him. But I thought, Oh, he's, he's that he's, he's the real guy. And you're like, yeah. he wants no special treatment. He values everybody that's there. He runs his set very calmly. There's no, you know, there's no bullshitting. I mean, he's just, uh, he's just extraordinary. And then he goes and makes brilliant movies on top of it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I just got all these, you know, epiphanies, uh, you know, being around him over the years and, and, and really learned the right way to do things. You know what I love about that is I'm always fascinated by these interesting, remarkable people doing ordinary things. And for me, that's almost, you know, how, how does Clint Eastwood go buy his newspaper at the local stand or whatever. Like, how does he do some of those most, but, and, and you've just illustrated that because it was something I was really curious about. How does some, somebody like Clint Eastwood just do the average thing that the rest of us all do, you know? He just does it. I mean, he doesn't yeah. even think about yeah. his fame or if somebody, you know, because see, there's, there's a thing in, in the movie business and actually in all of entertainment, you know, there are the, the people who, really appreciate their fans and know that their fans are responsible for their, for their great luck mm-hmm. and well-being. And fortunately I've worked with a lot of people from that generation, whether it's Willie Nelson, Burt Reynolds, Clint Eastwood, Michael Douglas, obviously a lot younger, but of that tradition, when somebody comes over and asks for an autograph, they're happy to do it. Want to take a picture? Great. They have real appreciation of those people. And it's, it's really wonderful to see because I've seen the opposite. I've been in, you know, with other actors, uh, younger who, when somebody comes over, uh, Hey, you know, would you mind that? And they're like, yeah, I do mind. And you're like, Whoa, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, they're paid for that house yeah. in Malibu, you know, I yeah. mean, you might want to just be a little nicer about it, but yeah. not everybody is. It's not fascinating. So look, yeah. you know, in all those years, you know, you, you, uh, film and music, you know, if I said to you, what, what have been some of the, the standout highs 
um, and, and that you've had in your, you know, 30 plus year, 40 year career. Are there a couple? Well, is it too hard to narrow it down? If it is, that's, that's fine. But I thought if there was a couple no, of standouts. No, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, there are things, there are d- definitely things that stand out, but you know, it really does coincide with getting married and being a parent. You know, it's like I, mm. there was this moment when I, you know, I'm divorced now, but when I, when I met my, my ex-wife, you know, I was ascending the corporate ladder at Warner brothers. I, I was madly in love. Um, we had our first kid right away and literally, uh, you know, Emma was born in 94 and I was promoted to president of Warner brothers in 96. And it was just this incredible, moment in my life. You know, I bought the big house. I had the screening room. I had a great wife. I had my first kid, Mm -hmm. you know, I was doing triathlons. Um, things were really, really good. Not that they're not good now, but, but it it was my first experience of, of really kind of having it together, you know, Mm -hmm. having a family and a career and, and, and I, and, you know, the movie business was in a great place in those days. And, you could advocate for things just based on your passion and, uh, and get good stuff done like we did with Reversal of Fortune. And then, you know, later on with, with like movies you mentioned, like Heat and LA Confidential, those were, those were examples of going to the mat for something. Um, you know, they weren't obvious movies for Warners to make at that point. Some were. I mean, some of them, you know, Twister, things like that were pretty commercial and every, it wasn't really hard to get that movie made, you know, written by Michael Crichton and everything. But so that was, that was a great period, you know, certainly going from a guy who knew nothing about the movie business to the president of the studio in 10 years was, was really, you know, it was exciting, but you know, I, I also, you know, I was doing yoga. I was doing my best Mm -hmm. to stay, stay centered. I was training a lot. I was, you know, showing up for, my newborn daughter and, you know, got up at five in the morning with her and gave her her apple juice and all that kind of stuff, you know? I love that. I love that when I talk about great highs, you encapsulated, it was all of those pieces came together, you know? Yeah. It's it's family, wealth and health. You know, it's all of these things and you feel respected and valued in the world. Um, Did that last? It lasted for a while. I mean, you know, marriage is hard and, um, you know, there's no playbook and, um, you know, mine ended up going in a different direction, but we had three amazing children together. I now have four. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a baby after I got separated. It's funny, you know, I got divorced, you know, I was, I don't know, 61 or something. And, um, you know, when I separated and, uh, it's a weird thing. And I, and I've talked to friends of mine about this. It's like, you, you kind of become that person you were, well, at least my friends and I have discussed this. We kind of became the person we were before we got married in some ways. And it's kind of like being a teenager again, because you're open to all these possibilities and, but you've got some money, you know what I mean? So it's like, Oh, he's you're, kind of, you're, you're that kid, you're that person you kind of fantasized about being before you became, you know, uh, uh, the breadwinner of the family or whatever. And, and dad, yeah. all of a sudden you're like, your kids are grown. You're like, huh, maybe I should go to Hawaii and go surfing or whatever. You know, you just all of a sudden there's all this stuff like yeah. you never really thought about doing that you start doing. But, you know, for a long time I had been working on a star is born. Mm. And so A Star is Born literally came out, you know, a month uh, after I was separated. So I wasn't really able to experience the real highs of A Star is Born because I was sad. Yeah, yeah there's a lot um, of stuff going you know, on. And, and mm. you know, mm. I was, ha- you know, was, was being separated was rough. And, and my, my kids, you know, were put through a lot of Michigas because of it. But um, it's, you know, a hit's a hit's a hit, as Ahmed Erdogan said. And, you know, a hit... Uh, it hit it fixes a lot of things and so the timing of that was was pretty good uh, uh emotionally and financially and um no, you know career wise so uh that was uh, you know when you said are there others i mean you know stars born because it was so you know music oriented was really a triumph for me personally because 
in making it, I got to do everything uh, I know how to do. How uh, good was the music? Stuff, how music good? stuff, oh, everything, you know? The music was unbelievable. With Lady yeah. Gaga and Bradley Cooper and, yeah. and, and it grossed something like 450 million or something at the box yeah, office. Yeah, you know, well, I said to Bradley when we first started, I said, look, you know, the, the music part of this film is a film onto itself. It's a, yeah. you know what I mean? So yeah. it's a production onto itself. And so we approached it from that point of view. So we had a great and amazing music team, you know, from the Interscope people to the Warner people, you know, Darren Higman. I mean, we just, it, it was an incredible team of people because it was a lot, you know, because Gaga's got her whole thing and Bradley had a thing and Lucas Nelson had a thing, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of moving pieces, but... Um, and you're coordinating a lot of that, right? I mean, your role is is in somewhat coordinating all those moving there's pieces. There's not anything about it I'm not coordinating, you know, <laughs> I mean, there, it's every, every little, you know, detail is going through my brain. Yeah. Uh, luckily, there were really, really competent people um, doing their jobs as well. But, you know, but you have a surprise. I mean, look, we all knew Gaga was super talented, but but he brought something, you yeah. know, uh, uh, out of her uh, that was a whole other level. And um, and she brought some great music, obviously, Shallow among among oh, them. Shallow to is the, an extraordinary to the movie, which, you know, she she wrote after reading the script. And, and no way. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. 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 She, with with. Um, uh, you know, Mark Ronson and, and others. And, uh, but yeah, the music side of it, I mean, just, you know, like for example, uh, for years I've been going to Coachella and when they, uh, added the second weekend, which I don't remember what year it was, but you know, we were still developing a stars bar. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if, uh, we could use the, the sound, this, you know, the, the facilities at, Co- at uh, Coachella, for the five days in between the weekends of the shows. Like mm-hmm. I thought, wow, there's all that scaffolding and video and <laughs> rear screen, da 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 like and it's just so it just it turned out as, you know, we were, you know, Gaga was gonna do the Super Bowl and the dates started lining up and I called, you know, my buddy from literally from junior high, Gary Gersh is one of the top people at AEG. I was like, hey, do you think we could make a deal? Anyway, we started negotiating. And they were all in. They couldn't have been more helpful. And um, lo and behold, Beyonce, who was going to headline and ironically was once going to star in A Star is Born, was pregnant, had to bail on Coachella, and they wanted Gaga. So it was all wow. it was kind of meta at the end of the day because uh, we ended up shooting there and Gaga was the headliner and it all worked out. Oh, wow. It's amazing how it all comes together. I got to tell you. Or doesn't, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> but uh, I really, for me, I think A Star Is Born, The Greatest Showman, which came out I think about a year or two before with Hugh Jackman and Zaf Efron. Uh-huh. And then, believe it or not, I think the music from Moana. I think those three have some of the best music in films I've ever had, uh, ever heard. I think they're my, they're my top three picks for music. I just think yeah. what, what you did at, uh, on A Star Is Born is just music that you want to play loud. You want it's just it's just great. I really enjoyed it. So congrats on that one. Well, for <laughs> me personally, like if I'm in a movie theater and, and like if it's Bohemian Rhapsody or oh, it's, of course, uh, yes, yes, e, e, you know, even like um, what was it, uh, Absolute Beginners, you mm-hmm. know, Julian Temple's mm-hmm. movie, you know, it's like or even Dreamgirls, it's like. When I go to a movie and 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 like Dreamgirls, that first whatever minute, you know, few minutes it is that that musical mm-hmm. number leading to the story, and it's like if that if that's working to me, there's there's nothing like that visceral experience of of music working in a movie, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we didn't really the the Star Is Born opening wasn't oh wasn't written to be that concert, and when we saw. The, the footage from what we had shot at, uh, it was actually at Stagecoach, not Coachella, uh, Bradley um, doing that song with Lucas, um, mm-hmm. you know, by the wayside. Uh, we were like, wait, this is, this is the beginning of the movie. Because, you know, we had the issue of who's going to believe Bradley Cooper's a rock star, you know, so how do we jump that shark? And I remember watching the footage in my living room, you know, uh, when I was, you know, in the house with the family and, and calling Bradley and going, this is the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And he's like, dude, I think you're right. 
you know, yeah. let's, Jay's going to work on Jay Cassidy. The editor's going to do this. I'm going to look at it again, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it quickly became obvious that that was the way to start the film. A mini break to let you know that Bill Gerber is on the Any Question platform, which you can download on iOS or Android, or you can go to anyquestion.com forward slash Bill Gerber. And there are about a thousand experts across a multitude of channels, everything from sports and entertainment to pets and healthcare and everything else in between. So go check it out. Some of the world's leading experts in their fields are on there and it's all free. So go check out anyquestion.com forward slash Bill Gerber. I would think it's hard for someone like Bradley Cooper to, to go from the comedic roles he had to being, you know, the alcoholic music star, you know, in A Star Is yeah. Born. It's, uh, it's, it's not easy. I, I think you get pigeonholed into being a certain ter- type of person, but I thought he did a, such a, a great job. Of, you no, know, he crushed it. You and forgot you know, that very nom- quickly, yeah, didn't you? He's been, <laughs> been nominated four times before for an Academy Award. I mean, like he's... Yeah. Yeah. He's right on the cusp of, of, you know, I think he, I think he's got yeah. several Academy Awards in his future. Yeah. Um, acting and producing and directing. Um, yeah. You know, he's doing a, he's got this Leonard Bernstein movie coming out, I think this year that he starred and directed in and co-wrote. So you I enjoy mean, working with him. Is he one of the ones you enjoy working with? I mean, you work yeah, with Yeah, very everybody. much because, yeah. you know, with him, it's a marathon too. You know, you're, you're, you, 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 I mean, he makes you work harder than you think you could work. I mean, he's a great coach in that way. Yeah. yeah. And, um, we had a lot of fun and, you know, all the, you know, the whole production team, um, you know, worked, uh, with him hand in hand and, you know, but it's, it's literally, it's, you know, when you're sleeping, he's doing push-ups in the parking lot, you know, it's like, you gotta, you gotta bring your A game. You know, you, you've talked about your divorce, any Mm. other sort of lows where you've had to really, there's been big lessons for, for you from them? You know, in music, I would say when I went to start my own company, I mean, I left Elliot on very good terms, very amicable, but, you know, uh, the band that I was most responsible for, their Devo, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, traditionally when a manager, when managers break up, you know, the person, the people, the groups that you're working with, closely usually go with you to the new place. And so when Devo didn't go with me to my new place, Mm. that was, that was very, it hurt my feelings quite a bit. I'm still very friendly with the guys, but, but, you know, I, I, I was disappointed because I had put a tremendous amount of my life into, into that band succeeding. Mm. And, um, and they, and they did, you know? Um, And then, you know, I, I ultimately, after being at Warner Brothers for 12 years, I was fired. You know, I mean, they, they don't, they don't like to, they don't like me to say that, but, but that is what happened. And, um, you know, there was a political situation and I'd lost, you know, I didn't run as good a race. And, um, so, uh, you, I mean, in Hollywood, there's no place better than Hollywood to find out who your real friends are, you know? I bet. And, uh, when you get fired. And so I had that experience. Luckily I had the, the family I did, not just my own, but growing up, I knew how it worked. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I knew a lot of your friends were friends with the job, not with you. So my expectations were pretty managed when it came to getting fired from being president of a studio. And what I found was uh, it was surprising who actually did reach out to me, whether it was Clint Eastwood or Michael Crichton or Bob Pittman or David O. Russell or Alfonso Cuaron, you know, the people who I felt like I had, uh, some of the people I felt like I had really gone to the mat for. And there were people who I literally gave their first, you know, gave them the first gigs that I didn't hear from, which was (laughs) kind of remarkable to me. But again, I, I had managed my expectations and I, I knew there were going to be people who just were happy for me to have helped them with their careers, but didn't feel any obligation yeah. to help me with mine when I was on my own. And so, you know, that's rough when you're seeing on the front page of the Wall Street Journal that you're out. But we, I'm sure you and I don't know a lot of people who haven't benefited from adversity in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's true. It doesn't kill you. It makes you stronger. And, um, you know, I went off and did Gran Torino and like you said, very, you know, 
very long engagement and the rest of these things, you know, stars born. So, and I also at that point was offered by Bob Pittman, an old friend and tremendous individual to be the entertainment consultant for AOL at that point, which was the biggest game in town Mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, late nineties. And so I, I did quite well with the AOL thing and I learned a little bit about the tech business at that point. It's kind of novel that, that I was, (laughs) at AOL and I was at Warner's. And so when that merger went down, I was, I, I had nothing to do with the merger, but it was an interesting position to be in, uh, to be kind of an insider at both places. Some of these times when you feel like you get kicked to the curb, it, it takes time, but it's amazing the power of the learning from, from those experiences. And, and, and it truly is what doesn't kill you can make you stronger. I'm curious of some of your opinions. And one is the, the future of film. Uh, and what I mean by that, it seems to me that all the streaming services, whether it be Netflix, Hulu, whatever, all seem to be making their own films now. Has that changed the way you operate? And is it a good thing? Well, if the movies are good, it's a good thing. <laughs> you know, so it doesn't, I mean, look, I, as a producer independent, I mean, I have a first look deal with Warner Brothers. So anything I'm excited about, I go to Warner Brothers first, but that doesn't mean they're going to, they're going to do it, you know? Yeah. But in a way, it, it is it is good because it means there are you know more buyers uh, in the marketplace. So you know if I have, have a movie and, and I want Warner Brothers to do it, and they say it's not for us, I can I can go to this you know the traditional studios, whether it's Universal or whomever. But I can also go to Hulu and I can go to Apple and I can go yeah to Amazon and you know I've got more bites at the Apple to get a film made. So from that point of view, you know, yeah, you can get more. Content. On yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Next one. Top three greatest movies of all time. I would say sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Godfather, either one. <laughs> uh, hard days night. Nice. Everybody listen to those from the man who knows <laughs> three greatest bands of all time. Beatles, Beatles, no, uh, the Beatles bands. Yeah. You said. Well, you Beatles. can pick, in, I mean, if you really want to pick one entertainer, you it's can. It's so tough. I mean, you yeah. know, I'd have to say the Beatles, Stevie Wonder, mm. and Zeppelin. Nice. You, you ever get into U2 or any of that music in the 80s? Oh, yeah, but that's for you young folks. I oh, mean, please. You know, <laughs> I actually tried to sign U2 in 1980. I was in New York. I heard. I heard the 12 inch of I Will Follow at Bleaker Bob's with Carol Childs, and we both went, What? Yeah. And I ran back to LA and said to Elliot, You got to call Chris Blackwell. We got to sign this band. And obviously, they, they already had management and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I ended up having a relationship with them and worked on a film with them later on. But that's awesome. Yeah, no, I yeah. like you too. Awesome. All right, here we go. Greatest male and greatest female actor of all time. Can you pick one? That's a big one, well, I know. Marlon Brando and I mean, you know, it's hard because there's Betty Davis and then there's Meryl Streep, you know, um, <laughs> I'm going to say Meryl Streep. That's a hard one for you, mate. You know, all of them so intimately and it's, I'm sure, I'm sure I could probably ask you that question tomorrow and it might change again, but, uh, I well, it's tough not to say Cary Grant because, you know, we all, yeah you know, grow up us older guys wanting to be like James Bond and Cary Grant, but you know. I love it. No, it's true. I think it's Pound great. for pound, Marlon, Marlon's the man. <laughs> All right. Looking at the future, who haven't, who um, would you love to work with, but haven't yet? <sighs> who would I like to work with? Uh, I mean, you've worked with everybody. I don't even know who you You mean film wise? Yeah, film wise. Have you worked with all the Aussies? Chris Hemsworth, I have. Hugh, Hugh I mean, Jackman, Russell Crowe, and yeah. I worked with a lot of the Aussies. Uh, you know, we did LA Confidential. That's true. That. That's um, true. With Russell Crowe, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Kate Blanchett is somebody I'd really like to work with. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, she's beyond. All right, and and last one in opinions. What film would you love to produce but you haven't? Is there is there something out there that you like? I mean, honestly, I'd like to do a film about Donald Trump. I think it's one of the great gangsters, you know, scandal stories of all time. I mean, <laughs> I love it. All right. So that's going to be coming out soon. Yeah. Um, all right, mate. And these are just a couple of personal questions I want to finish with. You know, when you look back in your career now, what would you tell your 18 year old self 
if you look back? Uh, never sell any real estate. <laughs> that is not what I was expecting, but I kind of agree with it. <laughs> uh, you've had a couple of rough real estate uh, investments or what? No, good ones. I should I should never have sold them. You I know, know but that's what I mean. Yeah, you shouldn't have sold them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we could all agree with that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Three people that you'd want to have dinner with, um, non-family, living or dead. Queen Elizabeth II, for oh, sure. She's on mine. She's one of mine. I love yeah, it. Yeah, she's always been my number one. I was going to say James Bond, but I actually did have lunch with Sean Connery and Clint Eastwood once, which was super cool. Oh, now that is a cool lunch right there. Come yeah, on. I couldn't believe it. I'm literally Come pinching on. myself that I'm, I'm with Dirty Harry and James Bond at the Warner Brothers commissary. My favorite um, James Bond, Sean Connery, and Clint oh, yeah. Eastwood has to be yeah. up there as one of my all-time favorite actors. I mean, seriously, that's you know, a lunch. I never, I never met John Lennon. I, I met the other Beatles, and I was actually friendly with George Harrison. One of my daughters is named after him, but yeah. – um, John Lennon would definitely be be there. Very British so far. Yeah. And let me think who else would I love to have dinner with. That's a great dinner. I was going to say Cary Grant, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah. That would, Mate, I'm, I'm happy to be your waiter at that dinner. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one, I just want to finish with some, uh, you know, rapid fires. You ready? Mm. One book you'd recommend. Capture in the Rye. Capture in the Rye. I like it. Two most used apps on your phone. Oh, it's embarrassing. Uh, what do you mean apps? You mean like besides messaging and stuff like that? Yeah, it could be anything. It could be, you could yeah, just I, say. Like, I look at Instagram a lot. Yeah. I look at the stock market a lot. So whatever that is, whatever that's called. <laughs> yeah, the and stock I, app. You know, yeah, I get and it. My, I would say my podcast app is a close second. Yeah. Oh, ex- who do you listen to? Who do you like to listen to? Love Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. Mm-hmm. There's another music. I just just started listening to it, listening to Acquired, which is quite good. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other thing. Hang on, I'm looking it up. It's a music. Gary Kemp, I think, is the guy's name. It's the RPB podcast. Rocks back pages. It's mm. awesome. Yeah, they did one with um, with a guy with a. Not, Nick Mason, they did one with, oh no, Gary Kemp, yeah, from Spandau Ballet. That is just so good. It just, that, like I was talking about that period in the 80s with Devo and everything, and they just took me down memory lane in such an interesting way about Bowie and what was happening in that time in, in England and how, I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of the last of the big collaborative times. You know, you, you, when you listen back to like, you know, people talking about the Beatles and the Stones and all that stuff and how they would be in the studio listening to other people's stuff and, you know, it just was so collegial and great. Um, yeah, yeah. It's exciting to hear the, hear about those stories, you know? And I think uh, you should be a podcast host. I think we talked about this a, a while back or a couple of last week. Well, I'm available, that. Coach, you know. Well, somebody. mate, I, I'm always open for a co-host. When you can, uh, I mean, Rob Lowe said the same thing to me the other day. He's like, we got to do a podcast. I'm like, well, let's do okay, this. Fine, let's do a podcast. I'm, I'm here. I'll, all I do is freaking talk all day. It's like David Geffen said, <laughs> by the way, you didn't ask me what movie anybody should watch, but tell me my favorite movies, but... If you want to be in the entertainment business, the thing you got to watch is Inventing David Geffen on Netflix that uh, okay. is one of the great showbiz documentaries ever. That and The Last Mogul about Lou Wasserman. But, you know, David Geffen's talking about delivering mail. He's in the William Morris mailroom and he's delivering mail and he's, you know, walking around the offices with his little mail cart. And, you know, he's listening to these guys on the phone. He says, you know, I'm listening to these guys on the phone and I'm realizing all they're doing is bullshitting. And I'm thinking to myself... Well, I can bullshit. <laughs> That's life though. I think you get yeah. to a point in life where you're like, huh, everybody's just bullshitting. Huh, I can yeah, do that. You know, this whole thing about imposter syndrome. It's like, yeah. so what else is new? Of yeah, course we're all, we've all dealt you know, with that. You know? We all deal with that imposter syndrome. Get over you go it. to the doctor and you think like, oh, they know something. And you're like, no, they just cut out the bad thing and hope <laughs> that you heal. You know, it's like no one knows much. The, the fact that doctors, what is it? It's like malpractice is like the third biggest killer or something in the US. Like even doctors are bullshitting. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing half the time. Yeah, they're uh, doing their best, but you know, no one knows why cancer grows, you know. No, no. Hey, well, listen, mate, I think with the with the podcast thing, what we should do is is you can come on and co-host. I'll just be a back backseat moderator. And you, and you can coordinate it on my show to start and then you can build out. What do you think? Okay, so let me get this straight. 
I do all the work. <laughs> it's your podcast and you get the money. Is that what you're suggesting? Mate, you need to be, you should be in the entertainment business. You should be a studio. And then when I've had enough of you, I'll just fire you. We do all the work and the studio keeps all the money. <laughs> I thought we could have some fun together, but now you're pitching it that way. I'm a, We'll give it. Yeah, you can have my first season. Then I'm then I'm going off on my own. Here's another here's another question for you. Then, who would you want to play a movie of your life? Well, he doesn't look like me, but my favorite of the kind of people my age is Christian Bale. Ah, oh, so good. Yeah, I like that one. Very cool. Although I hear Bradley does a pretty good impression of me. Is that? <laughs> but he's too handsome. I yeah, mean, no one's that handsome. I don't know, mate. You're doing, you're all right. You're not too bad on the eye, you right? But I don't look like I'm not six feet tall with those blue eyes. You know that yeah. guy. Yeah. Literally, you get mad at him, and then he looks at you, and you're like, "Oh, okay, never mind." <laughs> you know who I like is uh, Killian Murphy off um, Peaky Blinders. Very good. I think he's he, excellent. He's a bit similar to those guys. Yeah. All right. Last question for you: Which decade of music is the best? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's such a softball. 60s. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I love it. And I honestly, I grew up with the Beatles on high blast most of the 80s even. I just loved I loved every piece of music that came out of them. But, mate, um, this has been awesome. What's next for you? What are you working on? God, you know, it's interesting you're asking about the different, uh, you know, streamers. The majority of what I'm working on right now are uh, limited series uh, for streamers, you mm-hmm. know. So mm-hmm. because I think – dramatically uh, kind of material kind of stories I'm interested in are now turning into five, six, seven, eight hour series, you know? So I'm sure if we were doing LA confidential today, it would be a mini series. It wouldn't be, Mm. you know, right. Right. Yeah. So a lot of the stories we're telling, whether it's Lou Pearlman, who was the con man behind Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, which we're doing with Hulu or, the famous Hollywood madam, Heidi Fleiss, which is quite, it's almost like LA Confidential, that story. It's such a, mm-hmm. it's such an interesting story about, you know, the dark side of, of Hollywood. We're doing that for HBO Max. And we're doing a, a several documentaries, which is really fun for me. I mean, funny enough, I started with the John Lennon one at Warner Brothers, and now we're doing Elizabeth Taylor with HBO. Um, we're doing one on the, you know, on Epstein and Stigwood, that story that I was talking about before. Wow. Um, with Live Nation, um, we're working on one about Leon Russell and Chris Christopherson. The documentary business has me firmly back in the music business, which I love. Um, that's great. But yeah, that's some of what we're doing now. That's pretty cool. It's come full circle, and you and you've got yeah. the, you've got the tools at your disposal to make and to make it happen. Have fun, have some fun with it, you know. Um, and all your knowledge has come together. But um, what I can remember, Bill, you're a great storyteller. This has been. No, it really has. I, I enjoy, you know, our dinner we had at San Francisco a, a couple that of months ago. That was great with Ed. With Ed's Ed. quite the guy. Um, you know. He, another guy sandbag you to death. <laughs> oh, yeah, I work out a little bit. Yeah, oh, I no. You look him up, you're like, whoa, whoa, what? You work, you, you won Iron Man. What do you mean you work out a little bit? The guy's a freak. The guy He's is a freak. Absolute freak. His fitness is just. He, he's a. I, I said to him, you could have easily been a professional athlete rather than being the head of growth and uh, at Uber and Facebook and and big, in, you know, the number one investor and all these things. He's. I'm like, you know, you could have been a professional athlete. He's like, yeah, I think I think I'm happy with my choices. I'm yeah, like, I think yeah. he did okay. It's like that Ralph. There's a documentary on Ralph Lauren, you know, which is which is good, you know. And you're watching this thing, and people keep saying like, you know, Ralph really should have been a film director. I mean, his eye for this and that. I'm thinking to myself, I don't know any film directors except for maybe Steven Spielberg and Jerry Bruckheimer and you know, who have, you know, 12 houses and oh, yeah. their own plane. Like, yeah. I think Ralph did good. I think he's know? done okay. It's all right. Yeah, he's sh- I think he's happy. Yeah, I know. I laugh with it all the time. Mate, you, you easily could have been a professional athlete with me. I mean, Yeah, you could be living in a studio apartment in Van Nuys right now <laughs> if you played your cards right. <laughs> oh, mate. Well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for coming on um, and just sharing your journey and all, all of your lessons and knowledge and everything. It's just been a real treat, mate. And I also got to thank you for just the wonderful content you've produced 
on any question and, and people can go go to anyquestion.com forward slash Bill Gerber, listen to his answers and, and ask him some follow-up questions from... from yeah, we from have a lot more where that came from. I, I, I'm excited about the opportunity to work with you and Ed yeah. on any question and we're going to get a lot of really great experts in there talking about the entertainment business, everything from marketing to home video to editing to being an agent. I mean, we're going to we're going to have a lot of a lot of stuff for everybody who is interested in the, the world of entertainment to, you know, draw from. That's brilliant, mate. I'm looking forward to it. It's an area that I'm excited about. And again, thanks for coming on, buddy. My pleasure. I appreciate you too, man. Glad we're friends. And everybody listening, you can find all the show notes and timestamps and everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks a lot for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.